Well, perhaps it was just me who didn't know it. You sang very well. Let us turn for our reading tonight to 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. And while you're turning to God's Word tonight, um, let me just repeat that although I've been asked to speak on um, outreach today, uh, it's obvious that we cannot cover all our bases, and the plan was never to give an exhaustive list of all that we can do and all that we are to be in terms of outreach, but rather to ask God by His Spirit to develop within us that outreach-mindedness, that uh, consciousness as we go out into the week, each week, that we are ambassadors of the great King. And we can pray that uh, God will give some effect in that regard. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. John writes, That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message which we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The Lord bless this reading of his holy word. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank you for this portion of your word. We thank you that you inspired men to put these words on paper, that they may be for us to read. We ask that they will be with Pastor Trumper as he brings this word, that it may you may guide him and be with us as we receive this word, which we ask in your name alone. Amen. Amen. Well, let us turn then back to John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. We are considering for this day a short series on outreach titled, Christ Shows Us How, and we began this morning with um, some principles of outreach, and we come this evening to some prospects of outreach, looking especially at the second half or third half of third part of uh, verse 14 through into verse 18. The principles that we considered this morning are our medium, the Word of God, the living Word supremely, 
revealed to us through the written word, the Holy Bible. And then we went on to consider our motivation. Uh, motivation is not that of guilt. It is a love, a yearning to see other people come into the grace that we have received through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I do believe that this passage lends itself to that uh, inspiration, motivation to own Jesus Christ in our day and to be thrilled and excited to make Jesus Christ known as God leads us through each week. And then we considered uh, our manner that we are like the Lord Jesus who dwelt among us to be present in the communities in which he has placed us. And when we are present in those communities, we are present as light. And uh, we probably have more influence than we might dare to imagine because of the light of the Spirit, the light of the Spirit of Christ indwelling our hearts and having an impact on those around us. And so we come then to the prospects because we are very results-oriented. If these principles are so, then what can we understandably expect if we are going to go out on a limb in the name of Jesus Christ to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to bear upon those with whom we live? Well, until we experience God using us in someone's salvation, it is likely that we are somewhat cynical that God can use us individually to bring home the gospel to others. I wonder, and I'm not going to do it, but I wonder if, um, I wonder how many of us, rather, in the congregation tonight have had that privilege of actually leading somebody to Christ. Many of us, I trust all of us, have been used of God, perhaps we don't even know it, but have been used of God as a link in a chain that has led to somebody's conversion. And that is going to be one of the thrills of heaven to come when we see the front side of the tapestry and the apparent innocuous acts that we have done, the conversations that we've forgotten that God has used in time to bring others to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I know, if I may share from experience, that I had no idea, absolutely no idea, that God could use me in the salvation of other people until through the sovereignty of his own actions, people came to faith during the sixth form when I was in school. And that so opened my mind to the reality that God is able and God is willing to use even me to bring people to faith in Christ. And I am confident, if you are yet to have that experience, that God can bring people to faith through your witness and may give you the words to speak that there and then they may come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are not saying tonight then that when we go out from this place and try to apply these messages on outreach, that everybody we come into contact with and everybody we are faithful in witnessing to is going to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not to flip 
from thinking that God will never use us to thinking that God is going to bring everyone to faith with whom we come into contact. Outreach, then, I want to say, is not a magic formula, wherein if we follow the principles, souls are going to fall like dominoes. I think that's not the way God works, and it's unrealistic to put it that way, but I do say that because there has been this error chiefly attributed to a man by the name of Charles Finney who lived between 1792 and 1875, who we call the father of modern revivalism, which is different from revival, who basically taught that the salvation of souls and the revival of the church is not supernatural, it is scientific. It is an ingenuity of the human mind and human effort. And so he said, if you go through these steps, then the church will, as a result, be revived. And we may apply that to that sort of thinking which says, if you apply these principles, then it follows automatically that souls are going to fall like dominoes and all these people are going to come to faith. And it's also the case in the light of the teaching of Charles Finney that if you say we're going to call... Um, a pastor here, or a pastor was going to be called to another church. In some churches, they may say, well, this is our expectation of the incoming minister. Or if you were going to review Pastor Bob and say to him, this is our expectation of you, that by this time in five years, we expect X number of people to be converted and to have come into the church and to be members of the church. That is happening in some parts of the professing church. And it is totally antithetical to the spirit of the gospel. And it is putting an immense amount of pressure on ministers, faithful ministers of the word of God, who are dependent upon the sovereign movement of the spirit of God to bring people to faith, God moving when and how and as, he designs and not as we want. And so we come to this passage again tonight. We do so by way of introduction with two reality checks. And the first reality check is found in verses 9 to 11. That here you have Jesus, the perfect evangelist, and what's the first thing we read? That he was rejected by his own. The true light which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now, Jesus, during his earthly ministry, spent the whole time evangelizing, and he was the perfect evangelist. Think of some of the statements that we find in the Gospels, Mark 1, 38. Let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Mark 6, 39, he saw the crowds. He had compassion on the crowds. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And then he sees the crowds thronging around him, and he says, okay, I'm going to start speaking in parables, because this crowd, they are so enamored of the food that I can give them, the miracles of healing I can give them, that I need to, as it were, slice the crowd in two to distinguish those who are after the food that perishes and those who are 
after the spiritual food that I really want to introduce them to. And then you think of Jesus even as he's on the way to the cross, and he passes these daughters of Jerusalem, and they're mourning and they're lamenting for him, and he says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourself. Yes, I'm going to the cross, and I'm going to go through hell. But there's something worse than going through hell, and that's going to hell. So weep for yourselves. And yet, when we read of all Jesus' compassion, when we know the perfection of his teaching, what do we find here in John 1? He came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. And so we need, in some senses then, to take the burden off ourselves and say, and stop saying, well, if we apply all these principles then all these people are going to come to faith. The elect will come to faith. But it doesn't mean to say everyone will come to faith. And if Jesus knew what it was to be rejected, we can be guaranteed we'll know it too. So while it is true, as one writer says, that in making a person a Christian, God takes a burden off the heart and places another on the shoulders... I want to encourage you tonight by saying the burden upon us as believers is not to be successful. It is to be faithful. And I don't want anybody going away tonight thinking, wow, I better get cracking. Because this pastor, this minister, expects all my work colleagues to come to faith in Christ. He expects all my neighbors to come to faith in Christ. He wants there to be an overflow in the church as we all collect all our neighbors, all our unconverted family, all our unconverted colleagues, because they're all going to be saved. No, the burden that's been placed upon us is to be faithful. We leave the success to God. Remember Noah, to preaching for a hundred years, how many did he take into the ark? Think of Isaiah, given a commission to preach until there was only a tenth left. Think of Jesus at the end of his ministry, about 120 in the upper room and 500 in Galilee after all the crowds that had followed him. So the burden is to be faithful, not to be successful. We want the success that will glorify God. But our responsibility is faithfulness. And then the second reality check concerns the acceptance of Christ, verses 12 to 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I don't want us to go away either tonight thinking, wow, two sermons on outreach and we're not to expect anything to happen. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this, that God does bless faithfulness, but it's in line with his sovereign action, his sovereign timing. And so what do we read in these verses? We read that those who do come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ come by a sovereign act of God. The Father chose them from eternity past and called them in space, time, and history. The Son dies for them upon the cross, and the Holy Spirit brings them to life and draws them to the Lord Jesus Christ in time. So the sovereignty of God then does not alleviate us of the call to reach out. As if to say, well, because God is sovereign and he knows who the elect are, then we can take out the middleman because we don't have a role. No, it's important to remember that when God ordained 
Who is to be saved? When God ordained the end result of our outreach, he also ordained the means by which his elect come to faith. And although God could, by the power of his Spirit, work to bring every last one of his elect to himself without us, in the fellowship that we have with God as the children of God, God has in a great condescension said, I'm going to use my people to bring my elect to myself. So the Reformed faith reasons not that because God has an elect, I need not reach out. The Reformed faith argues that since God has an elect people, we may venture forth with confidence. This is one of the things that I would like us to take away tonight, to have perhaps a reversal in our thinking. Maybe some of us are affected by a lopsided teaching on the sovereignty of God at the expense of the responsibility of man. And as Pastor Bob has said at the outreach conference, uh, the thinking in West Michigan, we just open the doors. Well, uh, the elect will come when the elect will come. That's not biblical. Reformed thinking says this, because God has an innumerable company of people that he is going to bring to himself, we can go forth with confidence into the mission field saying, God has a people and he is going to use his people to bring the rest of the elect to himself. Now, of course, we don't go out from the church and go to work on the Monday saying, who's got a little uh, laser beam on the head to tell us which is the elect and which are not. But we go with confidence that if we are faithful, God, who ordains all things whatsoever that comes to pass, is well able to orchestrate those whom he has ordained to save with those who are already saved, and through the witness of his people, bring the elect to himself. I cannot help but think, and perhaps you can think of instances as well, of instances in life that seem to have been so orchestrated that they can only have been orchestrated by God. My mind goes back to a flight. And those of you who are parents of young children probably get on a flight and you're afraid that your children are going to be whining and screaming and going to be an embarrassment to you and people are going to be complaining around you. I want you to know. The old people can be like that sometimes. And I sat next to this woman on a flight. Oh, did she whine and whine and whine? And nothing was good enough for her. And the bottom line was she didn't want me sitting next to her. Well, I can understand that. <laughs> so the stewardess came to me and said, Sir, do you mind if you, uh, if you move? The lady would like more space. Okay. So I was moved to this seat. And I was seated next to this younger lady. And we got talking. And the whole flight opened up about the gospel. And this lady was evidently troubled about her soul. And she asked all the serious questions about the Christian faith. And I couldn't help but think that God had orchestrated that whole situation so that I was placed next to this lady to be able to give a reason for the hope that lies within us. 
And I have confidence, I cannot say for sure, of course, but I have confidence that when I get to heaven, that that lady will be there. She didn't come to faith on that flight, so far as I know. But it, she had all the hallmarks of somebody who's been worked upon by the Holy Spirit in a way in which the first lady did not. And I would never have been placed next to this lady had it not been for the whining older lady. You see, we have confidence then as we go forth. And this was the key to the evangelism in the first century. Jesus constantly spoke to his father about the people who'd been given to him. The apostles on the day of Pentecost spoke about Christ having been crucified by the foreordination of God. And then they went out and took the gospel to the nations. And what does Luke record in Acts 13, 48? That as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. They were faithful, but God gave the success in accordance with those whom he had ordained to eternal life. So this is the second reality check. People are born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And all we are called to do is to be faithful with the gospel, knowing that God will connect us with his elect people in his time and in his place. Well, in the light of those two reality checks then, in following Christ, we pray that God would use us. And we pray that our lives would be a blessing to many. But note three means God uses from verses 14, the end of verse 14 onwards. The first thing he uses is our consciousness. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father. The person walking with the Lord and operating out of a balanced theology understands the responsibility we have to live as Christians before a watching world. And to know how important this is, consider now the testimony that John the Apostle, John the Evangelist gives of how he came to faith. You can read of his calling as he was mending the nets of his father Zebedee with his brother James in Mark chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 4. Jesus simply told him to follow him. Yet here he reminds us of two important truths. First of all, our witness is seen. John says he was drawn to the word by the sight of his glory. The word for glory is doxa, from which we get the word doxology. And so when John speaks about seeing the doxa of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's saying, I saw in Jesus Christ something that led me to praise God. In fact, so brilliant were these praise-inducing elements that he came to realize, as verse 14 tells us, that the Word was the only begotten Son of God. And so as time progressed in the presence of Christ, so his experience of Christ matured. And thus we find him writing, as we saw in the reading, 1 John 1 verses 1 to 3, of his experience of the Lord Jesus. It's a wonderful account of his time with the Lord. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have touched concerning the word of life. 
The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and so forth. Well, the witness was seen, and amazingly, and this is very challenging, the closer John got to the Lord Jesus Christ, the more there was to admire about him. Now, clearly, we are not the Father's only begotten Son. We cannot emit that original glory, that doxa, that belongs to Christ. But those who are born again are the children of God. And therefore, we give off a reflected glory. It's not original to us, but it is a result of the Holy Spirit bringing us to birth, coming to indwell our lives so that there is something significantly different about us, even though we might not look different to those around us. If I may be excused for giving another illustration of this, and I give it not to draw attention to myself, but to encourage you that the same very thing may happen to you. In fact, the very ordinariness of this account that I'm just about to give you shows that it was not of me, it was of the Holy Spirit. On one Sunday, while I was training for the ministry, I was uh, itinerating on weekends, preaching in different empty congregations, what we call pulpit supply. And so I took the train from Edinburgh in the east of Scotland across to Glasgow in the west of Scotland in what's called the Central Belt, and then took another train down to the west coast of Scotland to preach there for the weekend. My aunt lived about 19 miles away, and so on the Sunday night I stayed with her and spent some time with her and my uncle on the Monday. And of course on the Monday I was basically vacationing for the day, and so I dressed in a sweater, jeans, didn't even shave for the day. It was time with family. And at the end of the day, I came back on the train to Edinburgh, and it had been a busy weekend preaching and then time with my aunt and uncle. And so I just went to sleep. I put my briefcase on the shelf and went to sleep. And as the train is coming into Edinburgh, I'm conscious that the train is slowing down. And I wake up, and there's this man sitting opposite me, just staring at me. And he wasn't there when I went to sleep. And he said to me, you're a Christian, aren't you? Well, he didn't know me. And I looked around my table, there was no Bible, there was no book of theology, there was nothing. There was a young adult, jeans, sweater, hadn't shaved for the day sleep. And with that, he began to berate me, verbally abuse me, the rest of the journey into the city of Edinburgh. And all the time, he was verbally berating me for being a Christian. My heart was leaping and dancing for joy, because I kept looking around the table, convinced there was a Bible or some evidence that I was a Christian. But there was none. And as he verbally berated me, I was thinking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That there was something that God had done in me that he could see, even though I was asleep, not saying anything, not doing anything. 
And so as the train comes into the station, I say, can I just say one thing? He said, yes. I said, you're seeking, aren't you? And his shoulders lowered. He said, yes, I am. I said, that's why you're so angry. That's why you're angry against me. You've never met me before. That's why you're angry against the Christian church. That's why you're angry against Jesus Christ, because you're seeking God by his Holy Spirit has convicted you of your sins, and you've got to take it out on somebody. So you're taking it out on this stranger, hoping that he's the Christian that you can berate. And I take great encouragement from that. And I hope you will do too, and I'd love to hear your stories of how God has demonstrated that he's alive in your life and that other people are seeing it. John says, we beheld his glory. There is something praise-inducing about Jesus Christ, and we deduce that he was the Son, the only begotten Son of the Father. Now, we are not the only begotten Son of the Father, but we are children of the Father. That means we are indwelt by the Spirit of God. We are receptacles of the Holy Spirit, and when we go out into this world, we have something that the world does not have. And it would do us good to be conscious of that. But then we notice also that our witnesses spoke in verse 15. He then turns to John the Baptist and he says, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So in sharing his testimony, John adds to the sight of Jesus the words of John the Baptist. It's interesting that John didn't whisper. He didn't simply speak about Jesus. He cried out. He proclaimed him. In fact, John the Baptist's ministry doubtless helped John the Apostle, John the Evangelist, to understand Christ's glory. And so by proclaiming that his younger relative was greater than him and before him, he proclaimed Jesus to be the eternally promised Messiah. But what do we learn from this? Well, it puts paid, doesn't it, to the falsely attributed saying of Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel at all times, use words if you must. But we have already seen this morning that the medium of outreach is the word, the centrality of the living word, even Jesus Christ. And we have seen from the strategy of John the Apostle, John the Evangelist, writing this letter, how he uses that cryptic term, the word, to keep these Jewish and Gentile readers together so that he can bring the gospel to them. And so what are we saying then? We are saying that the worship to which we come each Lord's Day is our training ground. We are not simply sermon tasters. We are those who learn the gospel, articulate the gospel, defend the gospel. Says translator J.B. Phillips, the gospel is nothing but a frozen asset unless it is communicated. And so we don't just go out into the world then and say, well, I am conscious that I'm a witness. People are seeing me. They must also hear us. We don't impose ourselves upon them, but we say to God something along these lines. Now, God, you have told us in your word that you have an elect people that you're going to save. I don't know who they are, but you do. You lead me through the day. You bless my witness as I endeavor to faithfully follow the Lord Jesus. And when it is the time of your appointment with the people of your election, 
Give me the courage to speak and the words to speak. And John's testimony is surely that having seen the Lord Jesus and heard John the Baptist, he came to faith, our consciousness. Secondly then, our convictions. What more is there to learn about Jesus Christ from these verses? Well, from our consciousness that we are seen and heard arise several convictions. And these are gleaned from the nature of Christ's witness, says John at the end of verse 14, when they saw his glory. Interestingly, it wasn't the miracles. They saw a life that was full of grace and full of truth. Now, we as the followers of Christ then have several convictions which arise from this, and the first is the importance of grace. Grace or the unmerited favor of God is one of the many themes coming through the life and ministry of Jesus. The Jews to whom Christ came boasted of the truth, but they were hate-filled and they were self-righteous people. But Jesus came as a contrast to them. His ministry was a fulfillment of Isaiah 42, which we read for our call to worship. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. And so you go through John's writings, and what you find? Well, he has mercy at the wedding of Cana of Galilee in chapter 2. They run out of wine. And after he provides the best wine, we read in verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And then you think of his teaching. Go to John 4, the woman at the well. She's had five husbands. And why do you think she goes running into the city and says, come see a man who taught me, told me everything I did. I did, I ever did. Can this be the Christ? He's just told her that she's got five husbands. You'd think she'd be crushed by the embarrassment, but it is because Jesus, understanding her brokenness, says, I know your situation, and I can minister into your situation, that she then goes and gets people to come and also have their own lives exposed by the Lord Jesus, but it's the way in which he does it. And then you think of the mercy that he exhibited later with the woman caught in adultery. John chapter 8, I do not condemn you, but from now on sin no more. Think of the story he told of the publican and the tax collector, the man who beat his breast. God be merciful literally to me, the sinner. And Jesus says, that man, not the Pharisee, that man went down to his house justified rather than the other. So if we think then of being followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't perform miracles. We are not necessarily teachers, but we are as followers of Christ to exhibit the grace of God in the gospel. And we do so in correlation to our understanding of that grace. If we progress in the Christian life and focus upon our own holiness, but fall into the trap of thinking that our personal holiness has become our salvation rather than the work of Christ, what happens? Well, we become proud, we become hard, we become very sanctimonious, very selective about who we'll speak to, very unapproachable. But if we are daily open to the Spirit's conviction of our sins as God 
through the course of our lives, peels back one layer of sin after another. And as he peels back one layer of sin after another, we become conscious, oh, how much I need the grace of God. Then when there are people who come into our fellowship whose lives are evidently broken, dysfunctional, massively needing the grace of God, what do we do? We deduce that their need is no greater than ours. And if God can do some healing work in my life through the gospel by His grace, then what He's done for me, He can do for that person. Importance of grace. The second conviction, importance of truth. Not only did Christ personify truth, I am the truth. He taught it. He stood in contrast to the Gentiles who were forever philosophizing, opinionating. But Jesus spoke with authority. Jump forward to John 18 and the way in which he spoke to Pilate. For this purpose I was born. For this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And we are living in a day when we need to be less full of opinions, more full of the truth of God's word. William Gurnall, a Puritan, wrote this, News may come that truth is sick, but never that it is dead. It is for us to know the truth and to live the truth. The truth is our strength today, says another Puritan, Philip Brooks. Truth is always strong, no matter how weak it looks. And falsehood is always weak, no matter how strong it looks. Again, then, I say to us, we must be more than sermon tasters. We must be able to take hold of Pastor Bob's messages. We must be able to analyze them. We must be able to integrate them into our own thinking, into our own feeling, into our own willing. And the more that we are able to do that, the better equipped we are when we leave the doors on a Sunday evening to start giving a reason for the hope which lies within us. We don't treat our pastor as if he's a priest, as if the Bible is tied to the lectern. But we believe in the prophethood of all believers. And we believe that as the people of God go out of the doors, blessed by the instruction of the word, which after all is geared that our ministries may be perfected, not Pastor Bob's, that our ministries may be perfected, then we become an army of those convinced of the truth. Some of us may think, and I want to dissuade you from thinking this, well, you see, if I, if I launch out and I begin to speak about the gospel, somebody's going to ask me a question that I don't know the answer to. Well, it's simple. You just say to the person, I don't know the answer, I'll come back to you. They respect that. Don't let Satan tell you after all these sermons, all these Bible studies, that you don't know the truth and cannot articulate the truth. What outreach does is help us to know where the gaps are in our knowledge and thereby to come back to the education of the church and say, we really need something on this. I need something on this. And then, of course, thirdly, there is the importance of growth. As the only son of the Father, Christ alone was full of grace and truth in equal measure and all of the time. 
We are told in John 3:34 that he had the Holy Spirit without measure. We, by contrast, are born of the Spirit, but our lives need to be filled and refilled again with the Holy Spirit. And John goes on to speak of this in verse 16 in our passage. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. That's because none of us have perfect grace, full grace. We have perfect grace, but not full grace. None of us are full of truth. We have perfect truth, but we don't have full truth. And so we are conscious of the need to grow. J.C. Ryle once put it this way, what the world is waiting to see are not Christians who are perfect. They don't necessarily like Christians, certainly who claim to be perfect. What the world is waiting to see, says J.C. Ryle, are those who are growing. Because they deduce that if a Christian is growing, then they're alive. Because unless they are alive, they won't be growing. So if they see a person that they've known for some time, and they see this person growing in grace on the one hand, growing in truth, they deduce that something authentic is happening. And so we have these convictions, the need to be full of grace, the need to be full of truth. And because we're not full of grace and not full of truth, the need to grow. And so that brings us on thirdly and more briefly to our concern, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Our consciousness and convictions as witnesses is that men and women are dying without God. And so we are compelled to reach out because God is otherwise unseen. This is the language of John. As Jesus goes on to tell the woman at the well of Samaria, God is a spirit and they that worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. And then again in 1 John 4 verse 12, no one has ever seen God. He is incorporeal. He does not have a body. And because of that, some people have abused it. You remember, those of you who are older, Yuri Gagarin being the first person to enter into space, the Russian astronaut. And what did he say when he came back? I looked and looked, but I didn't see God. I looked and looked, but I didn't see God. But when we come to the scope of the New Testament, we find that the created order testifies to God that God, although a spirit, is seen through the things that he has created. Psalm 8, Psalm 19, Romans 1. But the point that John makes is that God is also seen in the spiritual order. He sent the word in flesh. And created a people to witness in the world. And our lives then become the visible evidences of God. This is John's way of speaking. And what he's saying is this. That our visible lives are the only chance the unconverted have of seeing God in this life. And thus, John goes on to talk about Nicodemus. 
And the way in which Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, the ruler of Israel, and then he occurs once more later in the gospel, John 19. There he is coming out of the shadows to take the body of the Lord Jesus with Joseph of Arimathea to embalm the body. What's happening? Well, this invisible God has taken hold of Nicodemus and he has given him a visible witness so that those who cannot see God can nevertheless see the activity of God in taking hold of this man, Nicodemus, and transforming him from being the ruler in Israel to being a humble servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I ask us, is this where we have come to? That we are burdened, that unconverted relatives are dying without hope and without God in the world. That unconverted neighbors are dying without hope and without God in the world. That colleagues in work are dying without hope and without God in the world. And what does that knowledge do? when we grasp hold of the severity of that, as our family is having to do right now, it surely ought to thrust us out of the shadows like it thrust out Nicodemus. I'm no longer going to hide in neutrality. I'm no longer going to hide in obscurity. I need to take my stand in public with Christ to be known that I belong to Christ. that others may come to know him too. I walked the dog after church this morning around our neighborhood, blessed by one of our neighbors, thankful for the multiplicity of gifts in the body of Christ, and walking past his house, he seems to be on vacation. And there he's put up during COVID in his front yard. This box, I think it has literature in it, with flowers, his wife's obviously done a nice job, and it just says above the flowers, Jesus matters. He really does. And so, when we think of our concern, it's not only that God is otherwise unseen, but that Christ is otherwise unheard. You see, Christ the Word and our example came precisely to make the Father known. He alone has the authority and experience to make the Father known. Yet by communicating his experience of God and his message as to how we may come to know God, we, having become the children of God, now that Christ has left us, ascended up on high, as those who remain behind, are concerned that the voice of Christ be heard today. Because he alone, of all the claims to world religions, is the one who declares the way to the Father, because He alone has been with the Father. He alone is the one who can bring us to the Father. That's why then John focuses explicitly upon the Lord Jesus Christ, explicitly on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Mark begins his gospel likewise, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so what's the bottom line tonight as we close? We've mentioned before, haven't we? 
We walk out each Lord's Day under the banner. You are now entering the mission field. What's the purpose of this series? It is that when we go out into the mission field, we go out self-conscious that we are the children of God. We are ambassadors of the great King. And whatever our vocation in the home, whatever our vocation in life is, first and foremost, we belong to God, our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And we go with this outreach-mindedness. God has a people He's going to save. I don't know who those people are, but God does. And in the mystery of His providence, He is going to connect His people to the elect, the elect to His people. And by telling them the words of Christ, that Christ came to reveal the Father, they too might become children of God. So we go with this self-consciousness. But you say, well, what does this self-consciousness look like? So let me leave you with these three things. Learn them. Repeat them to yourself when you leave the door in the morning. First, God has an elect people he's going to save. That's unquestionable. Two, I could be the means of bringing them to faith in Christ. Three, this could be the day. Let me repeat that. God has an elect people he's going to save. I could be the means whereby they're brought to faith in the Lord Jesus. And this could be the day. May God bless these thoughts. May he encourage us in our witness. And may above all, he bring glory to himself. Let's pray.